Fall is a season of change and the beginning to the end. It's the metaphorical death of life on Earth as animals and plants alike hibernate. But October is special. It's a time when we also embrace the frightful and the terrifying, conjuring images and representations of demons, ghosts, and monsters to keep us quaking in our cold, dark, empty homes. Some of us even devour horror movies like children binge on candy this month. We're enthralled by the shivers and jumps caused by axe murderers, possession, and malevolent poltergeists who remain safely behind our screens. But what is it about being scared that can be so captivating? Why are we drawn to the malevolent and the evil? And most curiously, what is evil? I'm Ashley Campbell, and this is Holy Media. Joining us to talk about horror and evil this month for our extra special Halloween episode is Sophie Day. Sophie has gained her master's in social work at the University of Pennsylvania, and she's currently interning with the Federal Defender. But most importantly for this episode, she's an avid horror fan. She's a regular contributor to the Bloody Good Horror podcast and blog. So welcome to Holy Media, Sophie. Thank you for having me, Ashley. I'm excited to talk with you about spooky stuff. It is, after all, my people's season of the year. So to get us started, do you think that there's something we can learn about religion in horror movies that we can't necessarily get from another genre? That's a great question. So when I was an undergrad, I did an independent study on religion in horror films, and it was really just... It was a pretty superficial kind of survey where I picked about 10 different American horror movies ranging, I believe the earliest one was in the mid-60s, so basically ranging from the mid-60s until the most recent one would have been current when I was in college, so let's just say in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, 2010s, you get it. Um, So anyway... And I was just kind of really interested in looking at this idea of the way that movies would very overtly use religious symbolism and the way that that changed. And I think it's really interesting if you look at movies, you know, one that will come up and I think we're going to talk about later is The Exorcist that comes up Mm -hmm. in basically every conversation that anyone has if you're talking about religion and horror because it is such a quintessential example. But you have movies like, you know, Rosemary's Baby, and then more recently you have things like The Reaping um, or The Last Exorcism that I think really try to grapple with and can kind of demonstrate to us the way that culture is in dialogue with religion at the time the movie was released. Um, So The Exorcism is a really great, or The Exorcist is a really great example, right? So we both watched that uh, in the last week. And that came out at a time where... Catholicism, I think, was a little bit more prevalent in culture in a more widespread way. And also, we had this pattern. There's a really interesting article in The Atlantic, I believe, last week, comparing Exorcist the movie to the Exorcist TV show that has been rebooted and is on Fox currently. Yeah. Talking about this idea that, like, when The Exorcist came out, this kind of Catholic storytelling was a lot more common 
and there were all these touchstones that you didn't really have to necessarily explain everything that's happening to Regan in the movie because those things mm-hmm. were sort of present within the cultural consciousness. And I think that I've been watching the Exorcist TV show, and I don't know if you've seen any of it, but... No, I haven't. It, I think it really struggles to kind of... Um, to really attach itself to any of the religious aspects. It really comes off as feeling like the religious parts of the story are just kind of put on top as a veneer and they don't really go any deeper. And um, I'm wondering if it's just because they, the people making it feel like it's not going to be reaching as wide an audience today or it won't feel as relevant to people if they're really building that stuff in. Or I feel like if the problem is on the flip side that that's not already built into culture and so it's not being reflected back to us in the media that we're watching. Well, why don't we then go and kind of dive in further into The Exorcist? Sure. Um, Some of the things that, you know, we were thinking about um, in looking primarily at The Exorcist and um, Halloween as the two movies to kind of examine for religion and horror um, was how each are kind of addressing the concept of evil. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you've kind of already done a really good job explaining, in The Exorcist, it's it's very apparent. It's demons. And you even have um, the, the cop at one point, you know, pointing the finger at witches and witchcraft and the concept of witchcraft. But I think something that's really interesting in The Exorcist and the conversation around what is and isn't evil is the question of mental illness mm-hmm. and how the movie really is, you know, we could go down the line of science versus religion and psychiatry versus, um, like, spiritual, supernatural mm-hmm. um, explanations for why people act certain ways. But I think... I, I think there is something to be said about this conversation of, you know, in, a, in an increasingly secular society, what, what role do we attribute to mental illness in our conversations about evil? Sure. I mean, that's such a huge question. Um, I feel like, I think that that... that in particular, I think that dichotomy is illustrated really interestingly in The Exorcist. I think particularly in the beginning, you really don't have an idea of what is going on with her. And it's an interesting shift from... So I've also read the book that it was based on. And mm. in the book, I think they lean more heavily on the idea from the beginning that this is a religious-based issue. There is clearly something supernatural going on. Um, the stuff about black mass and witchcraft is really, really played up in the book. There's a lot of stuff going on at local churches that's making people suspicious, and that police officer plays a much bigger role kind of looking into those cases. Mm-hmm. And so I think the movie, you know, really ramps up this idea that we don't really know where this is coming from. And I think maybe one of the scenes that's the most effective is there's a scene where uh, Reagan is being examined. I believe she's getting an MRI. She's having some kind of procedure done in and a hospital. And it just makes me happy that medical technology has improved. Yeah, it's horrifying, <laughs> right? And, I, and, I, that's, and that's exactly the point. I think that that's such an interesting scene because what it, se- what it says to me anyway, and this is someone who, you know, I will say that I have some anxiety, particularly about medical kinds of procedures anyway but that scene makes that all of that look so horrifying and it kind of feels like she might not necessarily be any better off if what's going on with her is 
happening mm-hmm. to her physiologically or neurobiologically or for any of those other reasons and not because she's possessed by a demon demon and that's a really scary idea and it really with to bring religion back into it is it really definitely um because there is still so much about the brain and mental health that we don't know absolutely that it's like the this frontier in science that's just out of our reach at the moment and how for so long we have you know we now begin to I feel like attribute a lot of things that we don't understand from in a medical society to mental illness of we can't explain it physiologically it's a mental illness mm-hmm. and how much of that goes back to you know the origins of exorcisms um, I mean in the movie one of the doctors makes a joke you know of like well an exorcism is just a stylized ritual Right. And that it's, like, the power of suggestion. And and uh, Reagan's mom says, so you want me to hire a witch doctor? And how much, you know, we think about throughout, you know, history and across different cultures and societies and religions, there's always this idea of possession. And it's not always a negative thing. I mean, you think of um, different traditions who use shamans and... Um, or in the, the Hmong culture of how sometimes epileptics are considered to be spiritual leaders mm-hmm. because their seizures have a connection to the spirit world. Um, and how, you know, this line between religion and science really blurs when we're trying to address things that we don't know how to fix right. or we don't understand at all. Right. So I think, I think the exorcist, beyond all of its obvious discussions with regards to Catholicism um, really is also examining how we have an anxiety around things we don't understand, whether it's religious or medical. Absolutely. Well, and I think that gets back to the two movies that we're comparing. It gets back to this idea, I think, and my intention with picking them was that one thing I think that can be overarching with most horror movies and going back to this idea of being able to look at horror films throughout the years and kind of tell what we're afraid of is that there really is all basically always I would argue across almost all horror films is this idea that it's it can be so terrifying to either not know the answer to a question and then with these two specifically we're really looking at this question of evil really broad evil that is not coming from human origins that we can't really stop or have any control over. Here's a question for you. Um, switching over then to Halloween. Sure. I maybe because I it was the first time I'd ever seen it, but is it is it really not an evil coming from human origin? So that's a great question, uh, which I will explain in a sort of long-winded and nerdy way. So the original Halloween movie, which was released in 1978. The intention that John Carpenter had when making that movie was that Michael Myers' character was basically to be this totally evil and completely unstoppable force that just, you know, 
human beings had no control over. And his idea was really, I mean, you know, it's, it's set, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's set in a very suburban town. And the idea was kind of, you know, even in your home where you should feel the most safe, there's never any way of knowing for sure that you are safe, period. That's kind of the idea that he's grappling with. And so originally, Michael Myers didn't even have a name. He was just going to be called The Shape. Um, and the intention originally was that there would be no sequels. So at the end of the movie, when it becomes clear that they can't defeat him in the way that they would assume you'd be able to defeat a human, that's the best way I can answer that without spoiling it for anyone that has not seen the movie. Um, yeah. That they're, that you're kind of left, the, you know, and then the movie kind of ends abruptly. And the, the intention was that the audience would be left with this idea that, maybe he is this unstoppable thing and now he's out there in the world and we don't know where that the shape is or how it can affect us and of course the movie did very well and so they ended up continuing the story um which i think later on and in later iterations there ended up being eight within the original series and then rob zombie um remade the original and a sequel to that okay um so there have been 10 halloween movies in total and really interestingly, um, Rob Zombie, when he remade the original, he felt like he really wanted Michael to have more backstory. He wanted to understand why Michael turned out the way he did. And so he spends a lot of his movie, which I am not a fan of, and I have to just outrightly say that I do not endorse it and I wouldn't recommend watching it. Um, <laughs> but his idea is basically, right, that we didn't get a sense of why Michael turned out the way he did and it would be more interesting if he would. And I would argue that it makes it so much more terrifying when the idea is kind of just that as a very young child, he snapped, nobody really knows why, and now he seems to have these superhuman powers which make him kind of this invulnerable force of darkness. Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, I mean, I actually find that to be, that approach from my own personal, from my own perspective, to be less terrifying. And that's why I pose the question about, is the evil in Halloween human or not? Simply because I think, I think it's a lot easier to dismiss and to rationalize away when you can attribute somebody's evil behavior actions to something inhuman or referring to them in some sort of like myth mythological sort of way with the you know calling michael the the boogeyman Mm -hmm. um and but yet when you dive into why somebody has turned out the way they are and why what it is about being explicitly human in their context that makes them the way they are, I think that's more terrifying. And maybe that's just because I love psychology and one of my favorite shows is Criminal Minds mm-hmm. and, like, diving into that is just... But I think I think being able to get into somebody's mind and why they do the things they do is creepier. Yeah, I could see that. So I think the idea here is that the more that you could understand him, the more empathy that you could have for him and... You, you, and they want you so there are scenes in halloween where you are forced to identify with michael right where the camera is showing you his perspective you are seeing Mm -hmm. through the holes in his mask you are hearing him breathe and it really forces you into his perspective 
And I think that that, I mean, that naturally is supposed to feel very uncomfortable, but I think that not being able to empathize or relate to him makes that feel more uncomfortable and wrong because you, does that make sense? Like, because you don't have, so for example, in the Rob Zombie movie, the backstory that you get is that, you know, uh, Michael Myers grew up in a very abusive household. His mother was a stripper. His stepfather was very verbally and emotionally abusive and was always emasculating him and all this other stuff. Um, And that as a young child, and he was bullied a lot in school. And I feel like that almost made him less... I mean, aside from the fact that I just thought the movie was not well made... um, I think that it it kind of forces you to see him as a human being who is the way he is now because of the environment that he grew up in. And I think as someone who um, now works as a social worker, you know, I'm working this year uh, at the Federal Public Defender's Office with the Capitol Habeas Unit, so working specifically with people on death row. Um, It's so much easier to relate to these people who have done some of them have done really awful things. Um, it's so much easier to relate to them and understand them knowing their backstory. And I feel like knowing their backstory as a social worker, you also have this idea that it might be possible to try to reach out to them and connect with them and help them. And so so I would argue that it's so it feels to me anyway from my background so much scarier to feel like there isn't anything you can do to... I mean, fix doesn't feel like the right word, but there's nothing you can do to stop him from Mm -hmm. the path the very very singular path that he's on i okay i yeah i understand that i mean i just i i just um i just think it's interesting too i mean like what how we were talking about the exorcist of when we attribute things we don't understand to some other force Mm -hmm. and whether that is scarier or not sure but um also in Halloween, which I think is interest, a couple of things that I noticed with regards to religion, which got my my theory got debunked a little bit at the end of the movie, <laughs> but about how it seemed that Michael was mainly targeting people who could be qualified as sinful in a particular Christian context. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly around the idea of teen sexuality and a lack of responsibility for your own actions. Right. (laughs) And, I mean, it kind of got debunked at the end, but not entirely because I don't want to give away anything, but... Sure. You know what I'm getting at. Definitely. Well, and it's interesting because, so, um, with Halloween, John Carpenter kind of kick-started what we would now... Um, talk about as this craze for slasher movies so this Mm -hmm. came out and then not long after you had the Friday the 13th series began with Jason as the killer and then you had Nightmare on Elm Street with Freddy and for the for the purpose of this argument we'll just look at Friday the 13th and Halloween um, because they both include you know a silent a big silent killer who stalks um, teenagers primarily and so What's really fascinating is that um, John Carpenter w- has argued that it was not his intention because other horror, you know, that has kind of become a trope in slasher films is that 
people who, if you have seen Scream, Jamie Kennedy talks about the rules of horror movies, and one of the things he talks about is you never have sex, you never drink, you never do drugs. If you do those things, you know, if you're not a virgin, you're automatically on the chopping block. You might as well not Mm -hmm. even try. And, uh, And a lot of people would argue that John Carpenter started that pattern, and I think that that pattern is absolutely present in Halloween. Now, I have read that he says that was not his intention, and he was not really... He wasn't meaning to put a moral spin on it. He was more saying like what helped Lori to survive was that she was not wrapped up in boys and drugs and drinking. So she was observant. She was the only one who was seeing warning signs because she's the only one that was paying attention. And so at least from his argument, that was not his point, but that really did after his movie become a very prevalent trope in most things. And in the case of Friday the 13th, that, um, that trope is really built into so Jason does have a backstory and that trope is really built into it and he was a camper at Camp Crystal Lake as a child and drowned in the lake while counselors that were supposed to be watching him were off like partying and making out and so Mm -hmm. now he specifically targets counselors at that camp and the ones that usually go first are the ones that have snuck off you know to have sex or drink or do drugs Um, but yeah I think it is a really interesting pattern because what you know whether he says that he was doing it intentionally or not it is a very very clear pattern for the majority of the movie and does tend to um to follow up in some of the later films in the series as well So you, you mentioned the book by Philip Tallinn earlier, and something that I really... So in, in the section, in particular in the section about kind of like aesthetics and the poetics and power of horror mm-hmm. and social anxiety and things like that, something that really kind of um, came out to me was how he talks about like horror confronting the grotesque mm-hmm. and using... Um, our, our emotions of fear and revulsion and distaste for ugliness as a way of, like, revealing something hidden about society, which, I mean, is kind of the topic we've been dancing, or, well, not dancing around, but, like, subtly discussing sure. throughout this entire conversation. And from a religion nerd perspective, it really got me thinking about this contrast between the sacred and the profane and how... Um, on one hand, you know, we have the, the sacred, which we elevate and we idealize and we think is pure and holy and beautiful. And once again, then we have its opposite, which is the profane. And on some occasions, the profane can be like the absolute worst thing possible, evil, horrible things happening, or, you know, it's just the mundane of life that's just boring and traditional and whatever. But what what really got me interested then is how is it if we understand the profane and the sacred as opposites, you know, in conversation with each other and how one cannot really exist without the other, mm-hmm. what what sacred is what sacred are horror movies revealing to us so, through through its its horror profaneness sure I mean that's a great question 
And I think that there are a lot of different ways to answer it. I feel like the biggest thing that I think we've been talking about a lot is just this idea that I think that horror movies can be a vehicle for us to talk about or confront things about ourselves that might be hard to accept. Um, so, for example, the kind of things that I think that we can be afraid of as a culture, as a people, um, it can be really hard and uncomfortable to accept those things. And I don't know that that necessarily qualifies as, as a sacred thing. But I think that kind of being forced to sit with and acknowledge um, a part of yourself that might not be comfortable to acknowledge, I don't know if that is making sense. Um, no, that makes sense. So one of the other things that we read was we looked at this uh, essay by Bruce Lincoln where he's examining the cosmologic of Persian demonology, and he is really arguing that though the study of demonology kind of fell out of favor um, during and after the Enlightenment, it can be really important to look at the things that a culture is afraid of mm -hmm. to understand. So, you know, and I think... I don't know that he says this explicitly, but every time I read it, it makes me think of this idea that you can't possibly understand a person or a culture or a group of people or a country if you're only looking, or you know, or a religious group, if you're only looking at the things that we would deem are good and positive and worth mm -hmm. studying. Um, and so I feel like, and he, you know, he's kind of arguing that being able to look at the demonology really helps you understand the other side of the coin. And so I feel like that's where the intrinsic value is in being able to watch these things, is you're kind of forced to sit with this part of yourself and your, you know, your the way that you've been socialized that might be uncomfortable to sit with. And I don't and I would argue that most people are probably not aware that that's happening when they're watching horror movies. Yeah. You know? I mean I mean, we're not the most self reflective population <laughs> right but I, but I think it's happening whether you're paying attention to it or not and I think particularly movies like Halloween which is by no means the only movie that does this that really you know kind of force you into the perspective of the evil as well mm -hmm. as being empathetic to the victims um, I think can be a really powerful experience that affects people whether they're really aware of it or not So um, along that lines, I'm going to actually read um, a quote from the, the Lincoln essay um, that we read. So Lincoln, um, Bruce Lincoln, writes, quote, An unflinching attempt to name, comprehend, and defend against all that threatens, frightens, and harms us, end quote. Which, um, I mean, he's writing about the study of demonology and, and the purpose and value of demonology in society. But at the same exact time, I mean, although he's arguing that we can't we can't only focus on the positive components of religion, we have to focus on the demonic and the study of evil. But in that way, it's just it's just wrapping horror and evil into a religious experience. Um, religion's really just an attempt to name something and to understand what's happening to ourselves and give meaning to what's to, to experience. So, I mean, in that sense, could could we argue that horror movies are actually part of religion? Yeah, I think you definitely could. So there's this really interesting book that a lot of, um, I'm sure will not be new to anyone who has done any kind of um, reading about studying uh, horror movies. 
Uh, it's called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film, written by Carol Clover. And this is actually the book that coined the term final girl. So within you know Halloween, Laurie is our final girl, which really becomes a trope in a lot of horror movies. Um, so Clover kind of talks about and is really interested in the actual physical experience of watching a horror movie and specifically with the idea of watching a horror movie in a group. So if you're in a theater particularly and seeing a film mm-hmm. in that way. And she has this really great quote, actually, by um, William William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, where he's talking about the idea that the emotional engagement of the audience starts while they're waiting in line. I think Hmm. horror movies are unique in that it is common. I think if you're waiting in line to see a horror movie, this is a generalization. I'm sure it's not true for everybody, but there is this level of kind of anxiety and tension and just getting excited before you even go into the theater. So you're sort of familiar. Working yourself up, yeah. Yeah, you're sort of familiar with the patterns of what's going to happen. You know, within whatever subgenre of movie you're seeing, there are tropes that come up over and over again. And so I think that you, in knowing and having some kind of idea of what's, ha- what's coming, you start, you're already empathizing with the victims, right? You're already starting to feel afraid for what they're going to go through before you even go into the movie, really, and get introduced to the characters. And reading over this chapter again, I was really reminded, um, Emile Durkheim talks about religion as being this necessarily social experience. And he talks about this idea of collective effervescence, which happens when people are together in a space experiencing a thing at the same time and kind of having a similar reaction to it. And that feel that rings very true to me with the with the experience of sitting in a horror movie in a theater and watching a horror movie, particularly if it's a crowded theater. I think that you are much more likely to have people um, having audible reactions in a horror movie than mm-hmm. you are to any other genre. You have people laughing and screaming and yelling advice at the audience or at the I'm sorry at the people on the screen that I think really doesn't happen to the degree and in such an accepted way as it really does at horror movies. And so I really like this idea that I think, you know, we've spent this whole time talking about the inherent and intrinsic value of studying horror movies. And I think that there really can be the argument made that was a terrible way to frame that sentence. You could really make the argument that simply watching a horror movie can in and of itself be a religious experience, again, whether that is the framework that you're going into it with or not. Well, and also to bring in a couple other um, scholars that have looked pretty much at not just ritual, but also, you know, the the power of narrative and the power of story and how you can look at the cathartic experience that a religious ritual provides you and then see the same kind of cathartic experience happen with a performance, like a play. And I'm particularly thinking of, um, you know, Paul Ricoeur and um, even even Aristotle with his um, work on poetics. But this, this idea that there is an emotional release, an emotional experience that comes from participating in religious rituals or participating in some sort of collective, well, not even collective um, in the sense that you have to do it with other people, but in the fact, in the sense that what you are doing is always social, in the sense because you are in a social context. Um, so I mean, you know, we go into a horror movie 
even just watching um, a horror movie by yourself, you go in, you have all this built-up anxiety. I mean, I'm not a huge horror movie person, so watching The Exorcist and the Halloween, I had to convince, talk myself into doing it. Um, and, you know, throughout it, you, you go through the experience of relating to different characters, especially in the films where they position you to have to see from the, 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 the villain's perspective. Um, and you come out of it not only relieved that you've survived the experience in a way, but also understanding, you know, as we mentioned earlier, not always consciously, understanding a different approach and um, relatability to the thing that you're afraid of. Absolutely. And, yeah. Well, and I think that and, that's a really interesting point. I think that a little bit in one of the Talon chapters, he suggests that there is not the same potential for catharsis with horror movies. And I found myself reading it and feeling that that was so not congruent with my experiences. Mm -hmm. um, there has actually been some scholarly research done, and I can say from my own personal experience, that there's this really interesting, I think you'll find, pattern with people who really, really love horror movies, that a lot of people who really, really love horror movies also experience a lot of anxiety in general or have other kind of neuroses that they experience on a regular basis. And so, for example, I experience a lot of anxiety, and I would qualify myself as a wimp. Every horror movie I watch, basically without fail, even if they are utterly terrible, will usually have at least one scene that really freaks me out and leaves me kind of mm -hmm. jumpy after I watch it. But there is something so reassuring and cathartic about being able to go into a situation where you have all of the control over what is making you afraid. You are the person who is deciding to sit and watch this and there is no real um, chance for any any serious thing to actually happen to you. You know, you're not really putting yourself in danger. And I think that that's such an interesting um, pattern because it seems really counterintuitive. We would imagine that people who are easily scared and experience anxiety would not enjoy doing something that evokes mm -hmm. anxious responses in, in your body. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of seeing there's a film that came out that was not necessarily a strictly horror film that came out last year called Green Room that is by far one of the tensest movies I think I've ever seen in my entire life. The way that the tension and suspense is handled throughout the movie is incredible. And I, my legs were physically shaking the entire movie because I couldn't, I just, there was so much energy inside of my body that I couldn't sit still. Um, and I felt really anxious the entire film, but I have not felt so energized coming out of any kind of experience in a really long time. And I think that there is really something to be said for the kind of effect that that experience can have on you. That other kinds of movies, you can get emotional catharsis from a lot of other different kinds of movies, but I think it's qualitatively yeah. different when the thing that you are experiencing in the movie is this kind of existential dread about your own mortality. Well, and that's really relatable too. I mean, to the the work done on religious rituals is, at the same time that you are relinquishing control because you have no control over the outcome or the the result of the ritual that you're performing, but the whole point of, from like a very psychological perspective of doing a religious ritual is it's giving you control 
you are taking back control because if you do these specific actions in this specific way at this specific time, it should ultimately lead to a result, a very specific result. And you feel energized coming back out of it. You feel reassured that you're back on track or that, you know, what you have been working towards will actually come to fruition. Mm -hmm. And so once again, to, to tie back, you know, the experience of viewing a horror movie and a religious ritual is it's, it's giving you control back. Ultimately, you don't know what you'll get out of it, but you know that if you go through the process, you will come out the other side with a new perspective and a new understanding and hopefully what you went into it wanting out of it. Right. And I, and I think that that is maybe the best way to answer the question that we've been talking about this whole time, which is, you know, what is what value, if any, is there in horror movies? And I just feel that there is absolutely so much to be gained um, that just writing them off whole cloth because they happen to engage in topics that are uncomfortable and many of them do so in ways that are hard to watch does not necessarily mean that we there isn't something to be gained from watching them and experiencing them Mm -hmm. well thank you so much for uh having fun with me and talking about religion and horror movies absolutely talking about horror movies is my favorite thing to do and october is really when it feels the most acceptable to do it to the degree i would love to do it all year so this has been great have you been wearing uh, your horror t-shirts? I have, um, when possible. It's challenging because, you know, obviously my dress code at the Defender's Office is pretty strict. Um, and people in my graduate program also tend to dress pretty formally, but all weekend, every weekend, I'm in all of my horror t-shirts, of which I have many. And as you and I talked about yesterday, I am actually in the process of collaborating with a tattoo artist to get a tattoo of Laurie Strode from Halloween before October is over. So... It's a very it's a very exciting time of year. It's almost like Christmas for horror fans. Oh, why don't you explain uh, really quick? Describe what shirt you're wearing in honor of recording this podcast. Certainly. So the shirt I'm wearing uh, lists several of the classic horror directors in the style of those shirts that just have a list of things with lots of ampersands. Um, and so it says Craven and Carpenter and Romero. No, I read that wrong. Craven and Hooper and Romero and Carpenter who respectively are famous. I mean, Wes Craven is famous for a lot of things, but I'm just going to list the top ones. So he did the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and he also did Scream. Um, Cooper did Texas Chainsaw. Romero did Night of Living Dead and is the father of all zombie everything that's ever been made. And, of course, John Carpenter did Halloween. So they've all done far more amazing horror movies than just those ones, but that's probably the most accessible to the general population. Awesome. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. If you have any interest in any of the stuff I've talked about, I write for Bloody Good Horror on a weekly basis, and I appear on their podcast occasionally. So if you have the desire to get to know a little bit more about the genre, they have a pretty diverse group of writers writing about all manner of horror from the classics to the garbage you can stream on Netflix and it's definitely worth checking out. So that's bloodygoodhorror.com. Fantastic. Well, yeah, everyone should go check it out. Um, also, my favorite aspect of Bloody Good Horror is the monthly tweet with BGH uh, where you uh, watch a horror movie and you have a kind of conversation on Twitter with everyone who's watching it. Lots of commentary and 
really laughing at some of the, the bad parts of, the bad production Definitely. Um, of, of some horror movies. Yeah, I mean, good call. We would be remiss to not mention that since we've been talking about watching horror films as a collective and religious experience. So if you're ever interested, uh, it's usually the first Sunday of the month. On the Thursday before that, we'll roll out a drinking game for whatever movie we're watching. And then usually around 8 p.m. Eastern, we will all simultaneously view whatever the movie is, and everyone can follow on Twitter at hashtag tweetwithbgh. If you watch the website, the drinking games, and updates for the, the tweets will come up on there too. It's time now for a religion nerd moment. You're a nerd. A nerd. You're a nerd. For this month's religion nerd moment, I'm going to share a very nerdy experience that I had when I came across a photo book at a friend's house. Uh, I thought at first they just had a Bible laying on their table. Turns out when you open it, um, it is a Bible, but there are photos um, printed on top of the text, and some of the text is underlined. Uh, This fantastic project is uh, done by Adam Broomberg and Oliver Chanarin, and it's just entitled Holy Bible. Uh, you start to notice different themes throughout um, the Bible and how certain images are always aligned with certain underlined text. Uh, I got really nerdy and um, I was there for a dinner party and I ended up just spending most of my time flipping through this book. It was fantastic. And uh, you can check out um, some links that I posted in the show notes and a couple images that I took while I was uh perusing this holy bible and with that it's the end of the episode so thanks so much for listening uh to the october halloween special and i hope you do come back again next month Uh, the november episode will actually be the first in a new series of episodes called american scripture my guests and i will be specifically talking about the american novel I'm super excited about this topic, and I hope you come back next month to learn more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Holy Media. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode at holymedia.com. That's W-H-O-L-Y media.com. There you'll find links to articles Sophie and I mentioned, Fun Gifts, and this episode's beer pairing, which is actually a series of beers called The Demons of Ale by Avery Brewing. Also, please leave a comment. I'm always looking for feedback. You can also start a conversation about this episode's topic on Twitter. The show Twitter handle is at Holy Media. As always, you can find the show on SoundCloud, the iTunes podcast app, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoy Holy Media, I ask that you also rate and comment about the show on iTunes or Stitcher. Those ratings actually help the show gain an audience and provide me with feedback about what I'm doing well and what I could improve on. And I want to give out a really big thanks to Mahish Maradini, Vander Pelenis, and Malibu Doc for leaving reviews on iTunes this month. Thanks so much, guys. It meant a lot. And if you do leave a comment, I will, just like I did for last month's commenters and reviewers, I will be sure to thank you on the end of next month's show. So thanks again for listening, and have a great Halloween.
I'm trying to think. I'm trying to figure out a segue. You know, so to go, I'm trying to think. So to go from, I mean, if you want to, I could just be like, well, and. And this is Holy Media.